Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And here we are again with another edition of A Different Perspective. I will be joined by Kurt Collins in just a moment. Before we start, I would just like to say a couple of things. In the last few days, few weeks, um, my educational background has been under assault. I do not understand this. I have the documents to prove it. I think some of them are talking about fake degrees. I have a undergraduate degree from the University of Iowa, a legitimate bricks and mortar college whose college football team didn't do so well in the bowl season. Uh, I have graduate degrees from both the American Military University and California Coast University. Both institutions are accredited with online uh, accreditation, which is recognized around the country now. So I don't understand why they're talking about fake degrees. Yes, I did them online. The American Military University, in fact, is something that many, many military officers, especially field grade officers, use to gain master's degrees. So I don't understand the problem there. Um, I understand the PhD is not as prestigious as one from Harvard or Princeton or Stanford or many other institutions, but it is a legitimate degree. When I was looking for graduate schools, I, I found one that required you to have fluency in two foreign languages besides everything else that was required. And I was thinking, I'm lucky to have fluency in English, let alone two other foreign languages. I picked a degree program that fit my uh, pocketbook and fit my uh, time constraints and did what I wanted it to do. So the, the degrees are legitimate. So in the future, if you hear about the degrees being fake, I would challenge you to prove it. As I said, all, all degrees are from accredited institutions. Now with that off my chest, I will introduce Kurt Collins or Kurt L. Collins, who is the author behind Blueberry Lines, which is a website focused on the UFO mystery, as well as its legends and hoaxes. And I'm into the hoaxes part of it. After a career in retail management, Kurt began writing about UFOs with a special interest in reinvestigating the paradoxical 1980 Texas Cash Landrum case. In 2015, Kurt was on the investigative team, the Roswell Slides Research Group, that exposed the B-Witness alien photo, photo fiasco. More recently, he launched the Saucers That Time Forgot, which is what inspired me to get in contact with him to talk about that uh, project as well. And it was started with Claude uh, Fox, Foxstrom and is focused on unearthing tales of UFO history that has been overlooked or uh, would rather be forgotten. Kurt lives in Southern United States near Jackson, Mississippi. There's also some additional material and credits, such as um, 
at his website. It's just www.blueburrylines.com, and you can search through that. Saucers That Time Forgot is at um, HTTPS, the saucers that time forgot.com and blueberry lines can be found at www.blueberrylines.com. Kurt Collins, welcome to a different perspective. Great. Thanks for having me. I noticed in the background, you've got the famous 1966 flying saucers magazine from look magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I put up a few props here, but behind me is just a big gray filing cabinet. So spiced it up a little bit. Well, I mentioned that because, um, one of the one of the critical photographs in that is of Irving Newton, who was a weather officer in Fort Worth in 1947, and he was photographed with the debris in General Ramey's office. Um, and I, that was how I was able to find some of the other pictures because they gave the photo credit as Bettman Photo Archives, which has been bought out by, I think, Corbin. And that got me to the University of Texas at Arlington Special Collections, where the uh, negatives are residing. So that becomes an important piece of UFO history. Yeah, it's, it's funny, though, that that of the you know, Jesse Marcel, of course, is much more widely associated with that, but that Irving Newton made the cut for that particular magazine. So but he was there, too. <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, there was one photograph of him. There were two of Jesse Marcel, two of General Ramey and two of General Ramey and his uh, chief of staff, uh, General DuBose. Well, at the time, Colonel DuBose. Um, when we talked about this, uh, you had suggested or you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the investigative process. Well, sure. I know you have a running series at your blog about of uh, chasing footnotes, and that's kind of, that's kind of what I do. And, and you mentioned uh, uh, Claude, who uh, contributes to the blog. He sort of drew me into this particular project, draw, um, rounding up a lot of newspaper articles and you know other people have done that but what he did differently was to um follow the story beyond the headline he went to you know who are these people beforehand what happened to them later so we really tried to, to create a complete story and then from there it's like what does ufo literature show about it what else can we find out about these about these folks so uh and then from there we see okay, well, are there any historical archives that have anything relating to the case or the people? And, um, you know, I, I found lots of things there. Um, uh, you know, sometimes, and I'm writing mostly about things from 1947 to 1967, the real influential early cases that, you know, help shape the way we think and what we believe about UFOs. And sometimes the people are still alive, witness, uh, witnesses or, or writers, and I'm able to contact them and sometimes their children. So, so that's kind of how, that's part of what goes into it. Well, what's interesting is I've been, I've just finished a book called Understanding Roswell, which a publisher contacted me and asked me to write. Otherwise I wouldn't have picked the topic, but I was enthusiastic about it because they wanted to do some of what you just talked about, which look at the background of the people. So I was looking to the background of uh, Colonel Blanchard's staff, Colonel Blanchard, of course, the commanding officer of the 509th. I mentioned these things because I know you know them, but sometimes the audience gets lost in the minutia right. of the UFO field. But I was looking at the staff officers and what they did and uh, where they were and what happened to them. One of them was supposedly lost in the Bermuda Triangle. And actually, he did disappear uh, on a flight with a number of people from the 509th to Ireland. They were uh, producing a or, or, or transitioning part of the 509th to Great Britain, and that was part of the advanced party. And the airplane went down some uh, thousand miles north of the Bermuda Triangle, but is still in the, in the Atlantic Ocean south of Ireland. And a search plane found them in their life rafts, but it was 19 hours before a ship could get there to rescue them, and by that time they were gone. They found a burnt briefcase and a, a deflated life raft, and that was it. They were gone. But that was one of the officers in from the 509th disappeared. Another one was killed during the um, Korean War, and they were experimenting with some kind of huge bomb. And they were having trouble with their B-29. I think it lost two engines, so they jettinate, jet, jettisoned the bomb, and it detonated, uh, killing everybody. The plane was disintegrated and so killed everybody on board. Wow. So two of the officers were killed in bizarre circumstances, but it's kind of the same thing you're talking about. What happened to these people? How did they get involved? What is their background uh, for, for where they are? And so that's kind of what we were doing. I was doing a little bit with uh, understanding the Roswell case. Having said all of that nonsense, um, 
Are there some particular cases that you were excited about with the, the research took you in directions that you didn't expect it to go? <laughs> All of them. And let me tell you, <laughs> the, the reason I write about this is there's things, there's ones that I'm interested in. And I have dozens of dead ends and those have not been published. And until I can find something that makes them compelling. But I mean, just, just about every one of them, there was something really interesting, whether it was the people involved, the, the actual case, you know, sometimes it was there was, was like a humorous element to the story. Um, okay, to pick one example, and this was a lengthy explanation. There was a short story written in 1949 by a man named Graham Dorr. It was called The Outer Limit, not to be confused with the television show with a similar name. Uh, it was a story of a pilot that was abducted. He met with the aliens. They warned him that the Earth would, um, their uh, nuclear testing was could damage not only the earth, but the atmosphere around it, and that the planet would have to be quarantined. Very similar to some of the things you'd see later in the day the earth stood still um, and the contactee lore. But I mean, this was right here in uh, 1949, printed in a mainstream magazine. And the story was later adapted into um, uh, radio, uh, radio dramas and two television shows. So it had a lot of exposure uh, and was collected into a major collection of short stories. So, you know, it's kind of forgotten today, but a big deal at the time, very influential and, and in some ways prophetic. Well, the, what you're saying is the story suggested that atomic testing would damage the earth and the atmosphere? Well, yeah, the premise of it was, of course, that it was, you know, potentially hazardous to our planet and maybe to life in the uh, solar system, perhaps galaxy, kind of vague on that, but it was, you know, it was, you know, we were playing with something dangerous and we shouldn't be doing that. Well, I, the reason I, I, I questioned that was, um, and I hesitate to say this because I'm now going to get a bunch of hate mail, but uh, Billy Meyer was talking about the atomic testing damaging the planet and the atmosphere. And it all, they said, well, nobody was talking about that when he first made the announcement. And here we're talking about a story from 1949 where they're mentioning that specifically. And that was kind of why I pursued right. it. And it was, and, well, there were some people right away that were making a connection between the atomic bombs and the flying saucers. Could this be some kind of byproduct? You know, have we opened up some natural phenomena as a side effect of this? So, you know, there's a lot of speculation, but this, this story so connected it with flying saucers and then it was sort of an early contactee story in a way. So, so that, that was, my, that was my particular interest in it. I think it shaped some things. Well, I know it's, it's kind of fun to try to chase, I think of it as chasing footnotes back to the original source to see what the, the story said and how it has morphed in the day's world. I think one of the interesting things is the, um, story of a metal vessel being blown out of solid rock in Massachusetts. And they said, it's all written down in the 1852 Scientific American for you to look for. So I went to the University of Iowa bound, period, bound periodicals and found the, the story. And what it says there is somewhat significantly different than what we see in all the UFO magazines. And I, of course, did that on my blog about uh, what that story said, but it was uh, interesting the way it had morphed into something that suggested a civilization on Earth millions of years ago, when the original story wasn't quite that detailed, and it seemed and it seemed to have a hint of uh, the Masons in it because they talked about the famous blacksmith Tubal Cain, which if you were into Masonic rituals and information, you'd know that that was an important name in the Masonic uh, history. So there was that sort of thing. And you're wondering if this is not some kind of coded communication for the members of the of the Masons in that time and really has no relevance to us today with our interest in UFOs and the possibility of, of um, ancient, ancient civilizations on Earth. Well, yeah, we, we, it's, I need to look up that story. It's, it's always interesting, especially when someone there have been so many uh, events that uh, ufologists, reputable and otherwise, have tried to, to connect into the phenomena. So um, that that's something. Oh, and you, you know, when your introduction, you mentioned hoaxes. Well, I've, I've kind of taken a, a, a um, you know, that's a very negative term. People always think it means fake, but, you know, some hoaxes are 
what I consider counterfeits or, or frauds. There was um, in 1960, I think it was early 67, there were these, uh, the Jaroslav brothers in Michigan. Well, they made a, they made a phony UFO picture. Dr. Heineck was involved in investigating that and, you know, really chased after it. And with the help of his technician, he, um, an uh, Air Force officer went out, measured the scene, found out there was a, a child's swing that was probably what the object was suspended from. It was a small one, and, and there were trees in the background. Triangulated, proved it. Well, in order to do so, he also made photographs with his own model saucer. Later, people got a hold of his photos, mistaking him for the originals. It was an unintentional. It wasn't a, a hoax, you know, but it was a, a recreation. And, and that was, that's been, that, I list in the article at least six instances where that was uh, described as the, the real thing, sometimes as a genuine UFO. So let, that's, me, st let me stop you. Yeah. I got to take a break. Okay. I'm talking with Kurt Collins, uh, he of Blueberry Lines, and maybe we'll talk about the Roswell slides at some point as well, because that's interesting. Uh, the information I mentioned uh, can be found at my blog about Tubal Cain, and that is at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And uh, the website for here is www.blueblurrylines, all one word.com, and that will give you some more information. We will be back right after this with more with Kurt Collins, so please stick around. At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I am back with Kurt Collins. Usually at this point in the show, I make some comment about us practicing distance, uh, social distancing. But uh, in today's environment, I just don't care anymore. It's, I'm over it. Um, if Kurt was in the room with me, I would happily converse with him in the room. We are separated by states, of course, but that's just the way it is. Uh, what do we want to lay away? You were kind of talking about hoaxes. And I know for the longest time, for example, the Roswell case was labeled a hoax. Uh, if you go to, um, oh, uh, I forget his name, we had the great compendium of the wave of 1947 of uh, newspaper articles and everything that um, he devoted a page or so to the story, the Roswell story and labeled it as a hoax because um, that was a final conclusion, but but from your definition, it really wasn't a hoax. It was just a misidentification, and nobody was trying to fool anybody or or, or uh, create a problem. It was just this uh, missteps by a number of people. We now know that that's not true. That that the story has been manipulated since then. But that wasn't really a hoax either. Is there some hoaxes that were that, that you've exposed at uh, your web site, which is? And I should spell this, it's www.blueblurrylines.com and it's B-L-U-U-R-Y, blurry, not blueberry, but blueberrylines.com. Is there some hoax that started off as a hoax that kind of got uh, got your interest in and you learned more about that? Well, you know, one is a case that you're familiar with, the Carol Wayne Watts case of 1967-68 uh, 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 and the, uh, now I don't think that was ever you know, beyond the initial blush regarded as, as genuine, but I became fascinated in that case and all the parts of it. And the fact that, uh, that Dr. J. Allen Hynek was investigating that was that one seriously. And, uh, you know, it had some elements too that, you know, are so familiar to us now. It was kind of a step between the, the as the story goes, the uh, uh, Betty Hill's aliens and the greys as we think of them, you know, today. So, um, it, uh, it turned out, you know, there were photographs from that and, you know, they weren't particularly convincing, but as we see them now, because mostly they're only black and white reproductions, those were Polaroids and uh, some of the originals were examined by Dr. Hynek and he thought, you know, in color, they must've looked pretty good. I managed to locate one of the originals, a cropped version, and it is kind of mysterious, but 
this story was manufactured from beginning to end. And I wrote a, a pretty lengthy expose on that. Uh, and it's not something I really reveal myself. I did reveal, reveal some dark corners of the story. But, it, but as far as, as, as exposing something myself, I was part of a team that the Roswell slides that you mentioned previously. That's well, let, me, let me stop you before we go into Roswell slides, because I want to sort of update people on the Carol Wayne Watts story. He was a guy who lived in co coincidentally Loco, Texas, or, or near Loco, Texas, uh, in 1967, 68? The, the story broke in 68, but yeah, 67 was the event. Claiming that, that a, he had been stalked by a flying saucer and they wanted him to take a physical and he didn't want, want to know why. And they said, so you could take a flight. So he took a flight on, on board the craft and described it to people. And then he was going to go take a lie detector test, but he said he was waylaid by the CIA or somebody and told him he'd better flunk the lie detector test. So he did. And uh, the story is pretty much... Um, became labeled as a hoax. I interviewed the guy um, and I, I suspect he, he talked to me because at the time I was in flight school at Fort Walters, Texas. And the um, I had my car registered on post, of course. And so I, I suspect he may have seen the military sticker on there and thought it was some kind of a military investigation, but it was me and my 18 year old interest in UFOs driving uh, on a three day pass to, to talk to Carol Wayne Watts. Looking at the story till talk now, it, it is preposterous when he talks about, well, they had all these maps that he could look at, nothing digitalized because he didn't envision anything like that, which of course, Google Earth would have negated all of that sort of thing. And you would think a technologically advanced civilization that could get from Mars to Earth would be able to digitally map things without having to resort to paper maps. And he talked about weapons being stored and that sort of thing. So the story was preposterous on the face of it. And I think it died a pretty quick death. And the only reason I became interested in it uh, because I was there at the time, but later on I had a tape of my interview with him, which goes back to 1968. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting to, you know, I, I'd love to hear that tape just because we know now know that this was something he had rehearsed and practiced. And I'm sure that story he had told over and over. And uh, oh, oh, you mentioned the technology. So uh, he had weapons that were a little different from what other people describe, but the only thing sort of halfway original in his story was uh, uh, the technological. And that was that he was hooked up to a machine rather than given a, you know, examination by the aliens themselves. And there was, there was what he described. It's like a computer printout, which was existed at the time, but you know, that was contemporary with our technology. So, you know, that was easy to, you know, there's nothing beyond most of the stories of, of alien contact that are beyond what our technology, or at least our science fiction writers can dream of. Well, this thing sort of got, I've noticed as well, is that the technology exhibited, and this goes back to actually to the 1897 airship as well, when they're talking about what it looked like and how it operated, it looked like our technology from that period in time, as opposed to something that we would imagine as futuristic. But uh, that was one thing that's always been a stumbling block for me is how they do not they do not really have a sense of a futuristic technology uh, when they describe what they encounter on board the UFOs. Well, that's true. Some of the things we see in films like the, these, uh, these, uh, these, um, screens where you manipulate the uh, the data instead of on a keyboard or something you know I, I don't think i ever heard anyone describe something like that in in uh, in a ufo story but usually it's like you know they have hatches and portholes and you know it's, it's it's directly relatable to things we're familiar with well you'd mentioned briefly the roswell slides fiasco a number of years ago and uh, you were part of the team that helped um expose this placard that was seen on the slides. Give us a little bit background on the Roswell slides. Well, most people have forgotten it happily, but so what <laughs> happened was uh, some, some people, you know, Tom Carey and uh, Donald Schmidt were uh, contacted by a couple of individuals who had located what they thought was slides of an alien body. For, and wait, wait, they, let me interrupt you there, because I don't think the guy, I, you know, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt were fooled by these guys, but I don't think the original guys, Adam Drew and uh, uh, Beeson's, first, Beeson's yeah. first name, 
I don't think they, I think they knew what they had, but they had to know what they had from the very beginning because they manipulated the situation. So, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, we, we, it would be interesting to see how that played out in court, but it never got there. You know, they, they, they can claim what, what they knew and what they didn't. But the, the fact that on examination, that this so-called alien body was in a case in a museum and the case is pretty visible. And then the, the placard was um, the you know, part of the mystery. It, it, was a, it was a museum sign. Well, as it happens, the pictures were taken by a tourist the person's hand shook a little, just enough to blur this uh, this sign, so that looked like cursive writing, almost like Arabic or something. Anyway, when once once things were finally released after this huge production in uh, Mexico City, promoted by Jaime Masson, who has a shady record of presenting UFO information, I should note. Um, uh, eventually, we got hold of a, a clear picture of that placard. One of our members, uh, Nablator, who's yeah, that's the pseudonym he uses for his UFO research. And he um, uses commercial software, Smart Deblur, which is used for just what it sounds like to take a blur out of pictures. And it was perfect for that handshake. And it brought the, it brought the text into focus. It was the remains of a two-year-old mummified boy and, and not from Roswell uh, and not from 1947. So, you know, it was, uh, and what we were able to do was give other people this, the picture that we were working from, copies of the software that anyone could get, and it, it was duplicated over and over. So there was no doubt, and it wasn't something that, you know, our interpretation, it was just a stone fact. Well, not only was, was it not your interpretation, but um, a couple of people found a history of that particular mummified remains in a, a journal or a, a book that dealt with it. So you had pictures of it being recovered and being moved to the museum. And you could see in the museum, you could see enough of the museum, you could identify what museum it was in, in 1947. So um, I think that uh, one of the things that's interesting is Stan Friedman was invited to go to Mexico City, but he didn't go. And right. He was you know, he had he had agreed to. And I think it was uh, uh, some of your your listeners will know Frank Warren from UFO Chronicles. I think he made a pretty convincing plea to, to stand that he should not be involved in this. And it was a good choice because it was it was terrible. It was a huge embarrassment. And uh, it really not a lot of it got got made out of it. But you know, I mean, we, this was building up for years. There was a lot of publicity, at least in UFO community. And it did get covered some of the mainstream media, but it was, you know, a one day wonder if that. Well, I, I, there is a story going around that the first line on the card was actually de-blurred two or three weeks earlier. And yet it was, they couldn't get the information out because non-disclosure non -disclosure agreements. Have you heard anything like that? No, I sure haven't. But, you know, it's, it, it wasn't incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, we, we looked at this for just a very short period of time. And, and, and in retrospect, once you know, know what it says, you can really make it out with your naked eye. You know, it, it's, it, was, it just appears mysterious at first glance. But, but no, I haven't heard of any cover-up of, of that. Well, the next question obviously comes to mind is we've been dealing with the Ramey memo for literally decades now. In a similar type circumstance, it's the... the a message, the memo is blurred because of the angle it was held at the camera and the distance of the camera and where it was focused and all of that sort of thing. Have, uh, has your group done any work in trying to decode or de-blur the Ramey memo? We took a crack at it. Now, this particular software was no help because the, the shaking wasn't the problem there. It was just what you said, distance and the lack of, um, there's not a lot of source with um, the image source well you know it's a good photograph but it wasn't intended to focus on the this memo and uh no i i'm, I'm wondering though that you know if some some uh, there's doing a lot with the artificial intelligence uh, image processing i wonder if there's some hope that in the future with that well i think i was involved in the very last attempt to scan the thing uh, just a couple of years ago down in fort worth at the special collections 
And they spent, uh, the, the equipment they used took hours to scan the photograph and it got it down to the molecular level. It would strip away at a, just a, a, an atom at a time and got down to the molecular level and then build it back up. And it didn't help at all uh, in telling us what it said. In fact, it might've complicated the issue. But at the end, the fellows who were involved in that said, well, we're gonna have to be looking at artificial intelligence for the next level. There's nothing more that can be learned from this. No matter how good our scans get and all of that sort of thing, there's nothing more we can do. It's gonna have to be put, do I say it, in the hands of artificial intelligence yeah. to see if that can arrive at some way of, of reading exactly what the memo says. Well, when that time comes, they'll be using the scans that you help create. So, you know, we'll, we'll wait for it. I guess we need to send somebody a reminder. It's like when the technology is there, they need to take a look. I think the, the people who did the scans the last time in Fort Worth are looking forward to that. I think they were that interested in it that they would be looking. This was all part of the um, Jesse Marcel diary thing that erupted uh, a couple of years ago when Jesse Marcel, they the children have found a diary apparently kept by Jesse Marcel that dealt with the 1947 era. I'm going to take a break here because frankly, I have to, I have no choice. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to get your thoughts on if, if you have any on the Jesse Marcel diary program. And I think we need to look at uh, some of the other investigations that you may have been involved with that uh, lead us in directions, maybe to the extraterrestrial, maybe into a solution, I think would be kind of interesting. Uh, again, your site is www.blueblurrylines.com and uh, blurry is B-L-U-R-R-Y, blueblurrylines.com. I'll have a link to it in my blog as well to, to help everybody out for that. Mine, of course, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and we will be back right after this. So please stick around. And welcome back to A Different Perspective. We're on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and that's at xzbn.net. If you go to the website, you'll find a list of other programs on the network. And I'm sure there's something there that's going to interest everybody besides this program. Um, so take a look at that. See if there's something there that uh, might uh, trip your trigger, for that matter. I'm here with Kurt Collins. He of www.blueblurrylines.com. We were talking about the uh, Roswell slides and artificial intelligence when we broke away. And I think that we pretty well have uh, eliminated that. Uh, the only comment I would make is um, we know that the memo Ramey is holding has to do with the Roswell case based on the circumstances in which it was taken and some of the words that can actually be seen in the memo. If you get a good quality blow up, of that, and I have many, many of them, uh, with a magnifying glass, and even sometimes without a magnifying glass, you can see some words like weather balloons and Fort Worth, Texas, and things like that. There's a key phrase at the very top that says, that might say victims of the wreck, which tells you one thing, but if it's, as somebody else's interpreted as viewing of the wreck, that changes the whole dynamic. And I think that's where we need to have some better examination and, um, I think that the people who did these latest scans probably are interested enough to periodically revisit that. But when we went away, I also mentioned the, this all came about because of Jesse Marcel's diary, which was a series that I think was on the History Channel a couple of years ago. And Jesse, Jesse Marcel's children or grandchildren had found a diary that their father had or grandfather had apparently kept. Did you, watch any of that? Are we aware of any of that? I, I did watch the television special and, and it seems like they didn't really find anything too compelling, but I was, so in, at, at Saucers at Time Forgot, we trying to avoid these major cases, but I, there was an, an aspect that it interested me. So, so what did Jesse Marcel himself say about things? Cause we have all these stories of alien bodies and and where things were taken and, you know, it's gotten very elaborate and there's so many details added over the years. So I said, what's, you know, what exists of his original testimony and what did he say when the story was revived? So I went back and, and found some interviews and not from 1980 and published those uh, uh, along with a couple of pictures that, that were at the time and his appearance in the, um, uh, 
show hosted by Leonard Nimoy in search of he he was in a few scenes of that I don't think he should have been in more but they probably didn't realize the importance the case would reach so uh, I thought it was, it was very interesting of course there's no indication that Jesse Marcel was aware of any of these sort of things beyond the actual recovery um, so the uh, and it seems like if there were bodies involved this man would have known about it and he never said a word about it to my knowledge well, there is there is testimony from some people that he did say it. I don't believe those testimonies simply because he never said it to his son. And I think that had there been bodies involved and when they talked about it, he would have mentioned it to his son. And I say that because Jesse Jr. told me a story about his father. Back in 1947, the atomic bomb, the size and shape was classified. All of that information about it was classified. And he asked his father one day what the atomic bomb looked like. And his, said his father drew him a picture. I think it was fat man basically what it was it's an mk3 i think atomic bomb so he would know what it looked like and then he burned the piece of paper he drew it on so it tells me that his father would share those sorts of things with the son and yet the son never heard any stories of body so i think that the jesse marcel was not involved in that but i can also see in a point where having been an intelligence officer myself and operated in uh, those sorts of military environments where once the initial um, information was reported to the commanding officer, they saw where it was going. There was no need to keep Jesse Marcel informed. There were other people that needed to be involved, but he wasn't among those. And when you're dealing with highly classified or what might become highly classified information, uh, you begin to exclude people because as Ben Franklin once said, um, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Right. So uh, you, you want to limit the access to the information. So I can see him being excluded. I, I kind of worry about that analysis because, again, he would have been on the primary staff, and I'm not sure exactly where that would have fit in. But it turns out that the intelligence officer normally operates under the operations officer as well. So the chain of command is a little bit screwy when you get into those kind of levels. So once it got into the operations office and the commanding officer's office, it may have been no reason to keep him informed in what was going on. So I can see that kind of happening. Well, you know, that's one thing that, uh, that is particularly interesting about your work and point of view is with your military experience, you can, you can uh, see these relationships between rank and command and everything else that kind of are alien to the average person. Uh, and not to mention your ability to decipher some of the lingo in the documents, which is Greek to us. So, so we certainly appreciate what you've done for, for translating. Well, let me say this about the military jargon. I've been in meetings where the, where the jargon was flying so fast and furious that it sounded like a foreign language and I'd get lost in it too. <laughs> we need a big compendium of all the acronyms and how they've evolved and what they mean and how you pronounce them in today's environment. Oh, but yeah. That was one of the reasons I was brought into the KUFOS investigation of it is because of my military background. They thought I could relate to some of the people uh, on, a, on a level that it's people who had not served in the military could not do that. So that was one of the reasons I was, I was brought into that. Uh, I was wondering um, when we were talking about, uh, well, we were talking about the Jesse Marcel diary. I think we kind of let that be diverted here, trying to keep the extremium consciousness going properly. Um, was there anything uh, in, in the diary or in the, what you saw? And I understand that you just watched the television program. I at least was involved in the production of some of that aspect of it. Was there anything in there that was you found particularly interesting? Oh boy! See, now I, I watched it solely for for UFO content and and you know uh, smoking guns, and I didn't see that. And honestly, my memory of of the show is, is not that clear. So. Um, well, I'd, I'd be interested in, in hearing the parts that, that grabbed your attention, though. Well, I, I was just interested in it in the diary. And once they said the diary wasn't written by Jesse Marcel, I kind of said, well, what's the point? And they said, well, how would it end up in his hand? But it was in one of these memo books that used to be ubiquitous in the military. And I'm thinking that when Jesse Marcel cleaned out his desk to move, somebody else who'd left the memo book behind was in that desk and he just threw it in the box and went, went home with it. And it has no real relevance to him other than it took place, other than he had it. And it took the diary covered 1947, but it seemed to be um, 
random thoughts, quotations, um, inspiring words and that sort of thing. Nothing that really said, well, today we went out and picked up the crash flying saucer or anything like that. There was really nothing that related to that. And then part of it was in cursive and part of it was in um, just block lettering. And they thought that was kind of strange and there might be a code hidden in the block. Oh, lettering. Yeah. But I, I didn't, I, I think once you found out that the diary probably was not his, it kind of lost my interest. Oh, I, I had forgotten. I, that that jogs my memory on a few points now. But yeah, that's that that's a shame to have such false hope on, on something like that. I wish there was a real diary. Well, that's the problem with the Roswell case and, and, and some other cases when you begin to search for documentation. And I can understand the military cleaning up the documentation because this would be something you wouldn't want to be laying around. But we have found no letters, no diaries kept by other people. Uh, civilians who might have written something down or written a letter to somebody about it or anything. We, we haven't ever found anything that relates directly to that. And it's very, to me, that's very problematic. Well, the, the, um, we talked talk briefly about counterfeits and, and frauds and, and um, that's one of the problems with the case. There have been so many at, over the years. And well, when I say over the years, we're mainly talking about 1980 and, and up where, where the MJ-12 documents and the alien autopsy and all these other things were kind of grafted on and, and you know, to, to either support or who knows, you know, if they were any were intended to discredit, but you know, it just caused a huge amount of confusion and none of them are connected to the original event. Well, that's kind of an interesting point because in the, in the book and uh, Understanding Roswell, I, I deal with the alien autopsy, which I think was created to make money and it apparently made millions um, and the MJ-12. Uh, do you have any thoughts on who might have created the MJ-12 documents or what the purpose for creating them would have been? Oh, I, you know, sometimes I wonder, there's, there's so many uncertainties. Uh, we, we, we know the people that were involved now, whether they, the same people that were involved in promoting or created it, we're not sure. Now I've read the works by, um, ufologists, uh, Brad Sparks and Barry Greenwood, and they, they wrote a, a great article that was submitted for the MUFON symposium where it, the origins of it, they discussed that the ufologist Stanton Friedman and, um, Bill Moore and Richard Doty was involved and they had discussed making a, a novel, an MJ-12 novel, and some of the concepts in that later surfaced in documents that they didn't receive until later. So their conclusion was that the documents were false based on information that they had. Now, that they weren't, I don't think they were um, suggesting Stanton Friedman was a hoaxer in this, but certainly he supported it once it was out. So, but I think uh, Bill Moore and, and Richard Doty were involved in the creation, whether they actually crafted it themselves or just supplied information. So those are, those are persons of interest as the law would say. Well, what, is, what I found interesting in the MJ-12 documents is there's a paragraph in there that talks about a crash in the Del Rio, well, actually I think the El Indio uh, Guerrero area of Mexico, just over the border from Texas, near Del Rio, Texas, uh, which turns out to be a hoax uh, started by a fellow named Robert Willingham plugging himself into a UFO crash scenario. Um, but this is in the MJ-12 documents. And what I find interesting is Todd Zeckel, who is not the most reliable person uh, in UFO research, had uh, come across as Robert Willingham and got the information from him and wanted to write a book about this other crash and had talked to Bill Moore about it. And so some of that information shows up in the MJ-12 documents. Well, uh, Willingham didn't start talking about this until 1968. The documents come out in 1984. He's, Zeckel is talking to more in that time frame. So I'm thinking they plugged that in there because they thought at the time Willingham was a high-ranking Air Force officer and was credible. And so they put it in the document to make it me seem more legitimate because a lot of us believed in this Del Rio crash until we found out that uh, Willingham couldn't be trusted as a source and there was no other information about it. A lot of things in that uh, Willingham story turned out not to be true. So that kind of suggests a, um, a, a fatal flaw in the MJ-12 documents. It, it does. And that, 
that's uh, that's not the only one. I think there's you know, a number of anachronisms and things like that. But you know, the the timing is so suspect too, and the person that was chiefly promoting it, it, it seems to have been, you know, you have the author of a book on Roswell, the first book on Roswell, that um, and you know, here's this other information. Hey, this lends this this lends credibility to the whole UFO phenomena, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, hypothesis, and uh, Roswell in particular. So, and it's uh, uh, very suspect. That, that I don't know if we want to go into this very deeply, but so before Roswell reemerged, there was, um, a, he was called a professor. Turns out he was really just a lecturer for a university, Robert Spencer Carr, and he revived the Aztec story, made huge press, and it sort of got, this was in 1975, and it really got the ball well, if not rolling, reinvigorated the whole topic of crashed UFOs. And, and it was sort of in the wake of that. You had a UFO researcher, Leonard Springfield, who was, a, did I say that right? Springfield? Yes. Or strength. Okay. He, um, Stringfield, I believe it is. Yeah. So, so he, he, um, he began collecting information, including the case of an unnamed uh, Major M who turned out to be Jesse Marcel. So at least one of his witnesses was definitely uh, a let genuine. Me, let me stop you there because I'm I'm going to run out of time. I'm talking to Kurt Collins. We are talking now about Aztec and Roswell. Uh, we'll continue the discussion right after this. So please stick around. I am back with Kurt Collins of www.blueblurrylines.com. When we went away, we had kind of stumbled inadvertently into the Aztec case, which is the um, Aztec New Mexico from 1948, a crash saucer with 16 beings being recovered. Um, and I wanted to ask you two questions and I will I'll pose this to you now and then we'll talk about Aztec. Number one is what is your opinion of Roswell? And number two is what is your opinion of Aztec? But you were talking about Robert Spencer Carr, so we'll come back to those questions. Um, so you were saying that Carr kind of revitalized the entire um, Aztec case, and then um, um, Leonard Stringfield got involved in it, uh, checking lots and lots of stories of that. And you would mention his discovery of Marcel without mentioning who he was. I, I, don't, I thought you were going in a direction there. Yeah, well, I just wanted to, to, to so, show that even though the newspaper coverage of Carr's bogus claims did result in something positive. And uh, he, uh, and, and of the material he dis discovered and the testimony he took, we know there was one actual uh, case. And so that does give us hope that some of his other anonymous witnesses, maybe there was something to, out of them. Some of them I think are far too fantastic to be true, but you know, maybe there's something to continue looking at. Um, well, one of the things, let me, let me, one of the things that Stringfield said to me was on the car stuff is he was a surprise that um, a number of the witnesses that Carr had talked to, a number of witnesses that, that Stringfield had talked to as well. And that suggested Stringfield that they were kind of operating in the same environment. Um, I think the Aztec case is a hoax, started by two con men out of Colorado uh, in a way of, um, making money conning people out of money um but that's a whole that's a whole nother show i suppose yeah it's it's um, kind of a long story well something interesting about them that ties into the the blog i mentioned briefly that there have been very few fake hoaxers that have ever been prosecuted or charged with anything uh those two men the newton and jabauer they were convicted they wound up escaping prison terms but there were a few other people in all around 1957, another car guy, a um, Reinhold Schmidt and Harold J. Burney, all involved in UFO related fraud and did prison time as a result. So that's some, we, we, we have good articles on each of those. Well, let me, let me, I'm familiar with the Reinhold Schmidt thing because it's uh, November of 1957 and it kind of relates to the level land sightings. Um, might have been inspired by that, but you say he he did prison time. Was it for this fraud or for uh, other other fraud? 
his story got more elaborate as you know, the contactee stories usually do. They have con continuing adventures. Well, the aliens had helped him find not only gold, but also crystal mines and those crystals he was selling. He was selling shares in the mine and they were supposed to have healing properties. And he built a couple of uh, elderly ladies of thousands and thousands of dollars. And, and that's, that's where the criminal charges came in. So he wasn't prosecuted for telling the tale of a flying saucer. He was prosecuted for running a con. Right. And that was the same thing with Jabauer and Newton. They, the con really didn't have to do with their tales of flying saucers. It had to do with them attempting to extort money from people to uh, explore. I think Newton was looking for oil um, leases and that sort of thing. That, well, okay, there is a little stronger connection. He claimed the machines that he was selling to investors were, you, were the oil detectors based on the technology from the captured flying saucer. So there's, you know, they weren't jailed for the story. They were jailed for the crime that used the saucer story in it. So, and, and that all relates to the, that's where the Aztec story, that's the genesis of the Aztec story. Exactly. And you do not buy into the Aztec story, I take it. Uh, I think that there are some people that claim that that Newton took the story and manipulated it, but it was actually real events. I'm not persuaded with that. And, and I understand that uh, that Scott Ramsey has, has spent a lot of time and he believes with all his heart that it's true. I've not been persuaded. I think it was a hoax. I think it was exposed properly and it should have remained in the dustbin, but all these hoaxes get dragged back over and over. And, you know, there's this uh, associated memo in FBI files where, where Agent Guy Hotel summarized this hoax that was circulating and they were taking UFO information. Well, people come across that from time to time and think they've discovered something new and say, this proves Roswell. Well, it's just this hoax and it's, it's kind of infuriating. So, I don't know, anyone coming up with something like that, try to contact a veteran ufologist, check your information before you cause any excitement that's unnecessary. Well, if you want to take a look at the hotel memo, when I say this to the audience, it's, uh, I think the information is up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because it had surfaced again. And I'm thinking, oh my God, not this stuff again. Um, <laughs> what about Roswell? What's your feeling on Roswell? I'm not persuaded it was an alien event, but it was a genuine event. It's a genuine mystery, you know, and, but it's so obscured by all of these things that have, have come up. And there have been so many witnesses, you know, many of which have been proven to be false. And the thing that contaminates that story is this, this Aztec story became a best-selling book in 1950 and probably sold for years afterwards. It's a hardcover. And so, you know, not, not everyone knew it, but it was a bestseller and those ideas were circulating and there were so many secrets. I think there was a lot of confabulation. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't know. I know that it's not all true though. Well, the thing that interested me about this is it seems, and the Air Force helped us with this when they did their investigation, they eliminated practically every terrestrial explanation you could think of. And they came up with the nonsensical Project Mogul explanation, which doesn't work. And if you've eliminated that, you have nothing left as an explanation for what fell at Roswell. Everybody agrees something fell, but nobody, uh, nobody has suggested anything of a terrestrial nature that would have caused that debris field. Well, looking at it, and you know, I mentioned earlier that I had looked at uh, Major Marcel's testimony, the things that he said. Well, if we believe him at his word. This was this may have been a craft of some kind, but it was an unmanned craft. That, at least that's my interpretation of it. So, you know, that's as far as I can take it. It's <laughs> you've given up on me there. Yeah, I kind of kind of have. I mean, it's uh, it, it's been covered so thoroughly. Uh, now, one thing. Now, even in the um, cases that are a little. Uh, better investigated at the time and documented at the time. And remember so much about Roswell was known only decades later. Um, 
in those, we're usually, we have a lot of blanks in our information and, and some ambiguous details. It's almost like that memo that you described. You know, you, you wonder, what does it say? What, but what do these facts say? And there's conflict information. You know, people disagree on the numbers of things that they saw and locations and distances. So you have to have some kind of tolerance for ambigu ambiguity in this or you'll go mad. I think that's a good point, but I've also pointed out when you're talking about the number of bodies, for example, I think Colonel Blanchard said there were four, and he gave that information to Chester Lytle, who's a very reliable source. Um, other people said there were three. Some people said there were five. I'm thinking it's a matter of perspective, and if uh, there were, say, five bodies, but I only saw four, I'm telling you the truth, but my truth isn't the entire story. So there, some of the ambiguity doesn't really detract from the story. It just suggests what that person's perspective happened to be. But you are absolutely right. There's been so much ancillary nonsense surrounding the Roswell case, some of it uh, created by people who want to plug themselves into the story deeper. J. Bond Johnson, the guy who took six of the pictures in Ramey's office, decided he had to photograph the real debris. And it simply wasn't true. He photographed a Raywind radar target and a weather balloon. Um, there was a, uh, oh, uh, Charles Moore, who was the fellow with Project Mogul in, in uh, New Mexico, changed his story radically so that he could be the guy who launched the Roswell saucer with a, in his Mogul array, but it turns out not to be true. All of this is covered in depth in the in understanding Roswell, which will be out sometime in the summer. I mentioned that as a plug for my book and not really to <laughs> entice you into additional research. But I, I think you're absolutely right. There's been so much of this ancillary information going around, it's hard to filter through everything and get down, drill down to the, um, the point, the, the, real, the real solid information. Well, your, um, our discussion of, of Leonard Stringfield and other things that have surfaced, one of the things he found has, has surfaced lately, the uh, claims of, a, of resurfaced, the claims of a woman who said she was in her teens uh, an assistant to Albert Einstein, and that he flew to Roswell and investigated the bodies. And if that's not enough for you, one of the uh, surviving aliens was in telepathic contact with him. So that is his biggest whopper. I don't think a single element of that story can be verified. Well, I want to say one thing. I, I had that on my list of questions to ask you about Einstein going to Roswell. Because Again, on my blog, I looked at it in depth. Uh, and tried to get to the bottom of this whole thing. But from an intelligence point of view, there is no way that she would have been involved in this thing because she wouldn't have had the clearances to do so. Even if she is escorting Einstein somewhere to see this thing, uh, she made it clear she was separated from the main group and yet she was brought in and she could see the craft and the bodies. The, the story is completely and totally preposterous. I interviewed the guy, one of the guys, uh, Peter Strasberg, who wrote in his has a book called When Einstein Went to Roswell on the program. And uh, you oh, can look boy. it up and you can listen to his his excuses for what he had to say. Okay. Well, we won't take more, any more time with that if you've already covered it. Well, we, we don't have any more time. We're out. Oh, we're done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have signed you up for two hours for crying out loud. Um, anything you want to add quickly in the few seconds we have left? <laughs> oh, well, I've, I've got more stories coming up. I think there's something for there's something for just about anyone at the saucers at time for God, you know, whatever your interest is, whether it's a serious or if you want some of this stuff on the silly side. But, you know, it's all based on genuine information. So that's my plug for it. <laughs> well, and that was the whole reason I contacted you to do the program again was because I wanted to talk to you about the saucers that time forgot. Maybe we kind of kind of strayed away from that topic, sure. but, but, but we touched on it. But I think that's an important thing is to get to the bottom, to the last source that you can get to, to find out what the real story is, because oftentimes the interpretations lead you in a direction you don't want to go. Or as, as it happens in this environment today, the news media doesn't cover the whole story. They cover the story that they want you to hear about and leave some of the facts out. And it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on, everybody's doing it. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I think what you're doing is kind of the same thing, moving down to the absolute bottom truth so we can all get a good idea of what was going on. Exactly that primary evidence when it's available. Yes, absolutely. Well, Kurt Collins, thank you so much for this uh, 
stimulating conversation on uh, a different perspective. And we'll have to have you back and talk really about the, uh, the saucers that time forgot. Thank oh, you sure. so much. All right. Thanks for having me on. Okay. You have a good day. Uh, coming up next week, I'm going to talk to Robert Schaefer. And we're going to talk, I guess, about the idea of UFOs in the deep state. Uh, is something that he wanted to chat with me about. And as you all know, I have a book out called UFOs in the Deep State. So I think that'll be an interesting conversation. We've got that lined up for next week. And coming up in the future, we're going to talk to John Greenwald about uh, the latest in governmental um, requirements for UFO investigation, like where we were 70 years ago. And now Congress is mandating the investigation rather than it being General Twining mandating the investigation. But we'll get into that in depth with uh, Robert Schaefer uh, or uh, John Greenwald in a couple of weeks. Um, right now, the latest book that just came out is Level Land. It deals with the 1957 sightings around Level Land, Texas, where people at multiple locations reported their car engines being stalled at the close approach of UFOs, the Air Force investigation of it, and a look at the electromagnetic effects. It's a phenomenon, I think I've mentioned, it goes back to 1909, I think was the first case that I found and it continues today. Um, now the manifestation seems to be affecting cell phone cameras so they can't get good video of UFOs, but that's something else for, an, for another time. Uh, Take a look at Leveland, take a look at UFOs in the deep state, take a look at uh, Encounter in the Desert, which is about the Socorro case. As I say, I'll be back in about 160, 67, 164, 167 hours with a different perspective. So take a look for us then and thank you for tuning in.